Welcome back, everybody. My name is Melissa, and you're listening to part two of the interview with Denai Munyati of the Hassle Free Clinic in downtown Toronto. For this episode, we're going to be focusing on things like HIV, meaning it's transmission, and things like PEP and PrEP and where you could find them and what they mean. As well, we're going to be talking about the shame and stigma that's attributed to STIs and what we could do to try to combat the shame and stigma against STIs. As well, we're going to be talking about resources and different organizations that you could trust when it comes to learning more about STIs or getting support with STIs and non-governmental governmental organizations that you can trust, particularly in Canada. So if you liked my first interview, that's awesome, and I'm glad that you're here for the second one. If you have not heard the first one yet, I totally recommend it, and I hope you enjoy this interview just as much, or maybe more. And without any hesitation, here's the interview. I know we haven't talked about uh, HIV much. It's obviously very important. There's so many things that we need to know and as regards to like education and, you know, combating stigma and just making everything more accessible to those who are HIV positive. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I just wanted to know more about the testing and Mm -hmm. of course how it's transmitted and the risk level as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with HIV, um, it can only be transmitted with fluids. So that's blood, vaginal fluid, anal fluid, semen, and then breast milk with infants. Those are the only fluids that can transmit HIV. So you can't get it from sweat or tears or saliva or any other fluids. (laughs) Just those five. And the HIV in those fluids have to be able to get into your bloodstream for transmission to happen. So if someone is using condoms, then the risk of any fluid getting into the bloodstream, they're very, very, very low. And just having someone's fluid inside your body or on your body, again, because it has to get into your bloodstream, it doesn't mean that just because it's there mm-hmm. that the transmission will happen. So if you have any cut um, in your vagina, for example, then that's where the risk would come in. And if someone's having anal sex with the anus, there can be a higher likelihood of tearing because the tissue is more delicate, especially if there isn't enough lubrication used, Mm. then that would be where the risk comes in because you've got opening in the skin. If there's any semen and there's HIV virus present, then that's when the transmission can happen. And then if someone is performing oral sex on a penis Mm. um, and has had any dental work done, so if they had a really intense cleaning, if they had a tooth pulled, then that's where a risk could come in with unprotected oral sex. If someone is swallowing fluids, if someone's swallowing semen, HIV will die in your stomach with the stomach acid. So we're not concerned about the risk there. Um, But in all cases, if you have another STI at the same time, then that increases your risk as well. So if you have rectal gonorrhea, that increases your risk of getting HIV. Mm. Ideally, testing should be done 12 weeks post-exposure. The testing that we do, which is the rapid point of care test is what it's called. Um, when you prick your finger, that can pick up uh, any HIV antibodies as early as eight weeks after exposure. But you know, if you want to be very, very sure, the gold standard is 12 weeks. And if someone were to test positive, then with the rapid test, then the next step would be to take blood mm. and send that to the public health lab for them to confirm that it's positive for HIV. If you test too soon after exposure, you could have 
a negative result, but it may not necessarily be truly negative. There just hasn't been enough time to pick up um, yeah. the antibodies. And HIV is treatable. There are lots of medications now that are much better than the medications that existed even, you know, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so people, as long as they're able to adhere to their treatment regimen and have access to it, then they can become what's known as undetectable. Mm-hmm. So they have an undetectable viral load. It means the virus is being suppressed so much that um, when blood testing is done, they can't detect um, the HIV virus because it is at such a low level. And people who have undetectable viral loads, then we're not worried about them transmitting HIV sexually. So um, there's a term now, if you look it up, it's called U equals U, mm. and that means undetectable equals untransmissible. Okay, that's interesting. And then, you know, to prevent HIV, using condoms is the way to go. There's also pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is mm. known as PrEP. Oh, yes. And that's medication that people take before a possible exposure to reduce the risk of HIV transmission. So if there are risks that you know of, um, and you know there may not be any access to condoms for some reason, then you know you can take prep. Or if you have many partners and are unsure of uh, their status, can take prep. There is also post-exposure prophylaxis, which is, and that can be used in situations where there's a high risk for infection, but there was no condom use. So if you have a partner who you know doesn't have an undetectable viral load, they're still in the stage where their viral load is detectable, you had a condom break, then you can get post-exposure prophylaxis. There are also situations where, for example, if someone's been sexually assaulted, Mm-hmm. Um, they can have access to PEP as well. We don't offer PEP or PrEP at our clinic, as I said before, and PEP people can get access to it at uh, emergency rooms. Okay. When you go to the emergency room, the a lot of times it's the intake nurse who does the who has a discussion with you and they'll talk with you about the risk. And if it seems like the risk is something that's high enough mm-hmm. that would make PEP relevant to you. A lot of times, if people take PEP, they might not react well to it. It can be hard on the body. Okay. It's a treatment uh, regimen that you're taking for 28 days. Okay. And it's a type of HIV medication. And so sometimes people find that it's hard on the body. They can get you know, sick from it. They can you know, only maybe tolerate maybe a week or two of it. And a lot of times people discontinue. And it's quite expensive as well. I was going to ask, um, so you mentioned PrEP and then this, this is PEP that we're talking PEP. about now. Yes. And then people who already, who already have HIV and stuff, all their medications, I was asked, I was, I was wondering, isn't it, it's probably very expensive, all of it, probably need um, private health insurance to pay for these. Right. So it depends on the situation. So because PharmaCare isn't covered generally, then it's not necessarily covered by OHIP. If you are under 25 and qualify for OHIP plus, Mm -hmm. then you can get your HIV med covered. I'm not 100% sure about PEP, but 
for PrEP, I know that it can be covered. And if you are living with HIV, it can be covered that way as well. Otherwise, if you have benefits through work or school, you can get your HIV meds covered. If you don't have benefits, if you're 25 or older, there are other programs that people can access in order to help to pay for their meds. So there is a Trillium, the Trillium program, which can cover medications for anything Mm -hmm. and people have to pay four percent i believe it's four percent of their income to this program and then they will cover um, medications i'm not sure of the details in terms of you know generic versus brand but that's an option for some people other people if they are on ontario works or odsp disability program, then they can access their medications through the Ontario Drug Benefit. Okay. So the goal is to make sure that people don't go untreated. Mm-hmm. And so there are um, aid services organizations or ASOs, that's what they're called, that people are referred to. So at our clinic, if someone tests positive, we always refer to an ASO, PWA is one, which is the People with AIDS Foundation, mm-hmm. in order to get some support and they can help people to navigate the system mm-hmm. so that they can find ways that they can get their medication and not find themselves in a situation where they don't have access. And then, you know, if they're undetectable for a certain period of time and then can't access their medications, then, you know, their viral load can go up and they're out of the undetectable range. So, and, you know, then can get sick or get infections that they wouldn't get if their virus was adequately suppressed. So, you know, the goal is to make sure we keep people with their medication. So that's what aid services organizations do. They help to get what they need, either through this type of, you know, making sure that they get their medications, but also social support. Some ASOs will have food banks for people as well. So there are lots of support systems out there for people who are living with HIV so that, you know, they know that they're not alone and they don't have to go through what can be, you know, a scary experience on their own. For sure. Yeah. There are lots of people out there who are there to help, who can relate as well, and just be there as a a source of care. Mm -hmm. And are a lot of these places uh, usually, are they usually like government run or they are usually um, nonprofit? They're usually nonprofit. Okay. Okay. They might get some funding, but they're usually nonprofit. Mm. Sometimes a lot of volunteer mm. type of situations happen there as well. And a lot of them, I don't, I don't know if I would say a lot of them, but at least in Toronto, there are some that are culturally specific. Okay. So you have ASOs like uh, Black Cap or people who are Afro, um, African-Caribbean and Black. Mm. Um, ASAP, which is ASAAP, which is the Association for South Asian AIDS Prevention. And so those are, you know, for specific, communities where they can you know find culturally specific support because it can be hard in um, different communities to navigate certain things when you know they can't relate to folks that they're talking to or people may not know um, what it's like in certain cultural situations to talk about these types of things yeah yeah so it'd be um better if like they probably have counseling and stuff like that uh, Mm -hmm. available so that would probably be better to relate to somebody who you could um you could relate to you know (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, my next question, I guess, is, yeah, what are the safety measures that people could use? Um, you already mentioned, obviously, condoms um, would work. We're always taught uh, to use condoms or be abstinent in order to be safe from STIs. But what are some other ways that you could think of, ways that we could stay safe? Well, I always like to talk about things like consent, sure. communications, in addition to using barriers or medications or birth control methods. Like, it really depends on what people are concerned about in terms of, you know, STIs and pregnancy risk. A lot of times we associate being safe with being disease free. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's more to it than just that. So, you know, being open about STI history, as far as you know, sometimes people can be reluctant to disclose certain things or either, you know, if they had, for example, if someone has a history of herpes outbreaks, that, that can be hard to talk about uh, just because of the stigma that exists. If you have new partners while you're in, uh, what is understood as an exclusive relationship. That is something that's important to talk about so that people are aware and can make informed decisions about what they're entering into. Yeah. Just talking about what makes you feel good, talking about pleasure, what kind of sex, sex, sexual activity you're comfortable with or want to have at the time. That's important because, you know, you want to have a fulfilling sexual experience and you want to be able to feel like you're in a safe space Mm -hmm. um, emotionally and physically as well as, you know, in terms of avoiding or preventing an infection. So just being able to have those types of conversations are ways to stay safe. And like I said, consent. Consent is important and, you know, making sure that you're on the same page in terms of, you know, what's going to happen before things start to happen. And also, you know, being on the same page about what you are looking to get out of it as well. Yeah. And whether going to be exclusive or not and how many partners you're going to plan on having and mm-hmm. yeah 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 which brings me to my next point it might be hard people get messy sometimes <laughs> but how can people ensure that they're more safe during group sex and you know or if they're non-monogamous again it, it goes with communication I, I guess like you were saying and um yeah but uh, I was wondering if you could uh, add to that a little bit so yeah communication is important so that you know sort of what the boundaries are mm-hmm. and that's the same whether you have one partner or multiple partners boundaries are very important setting them and making sure it's clear where you can go Mm -hmm. and what boundary to not pass. So talking to your partner about what you both agree on for whatever activity is going to happen and then talking with whoever else you're having sex with Mm -hmm. so that you all know what's okay for whomever. So if with one person you don't want to have anal sex, just making that clear we're not going to do that. We're using condoms. Make sure that everyone involved is aware. If it's, you know, a group sex right here, one time situation, um, making sure that, you know, we all agree we're going to change condoms between partners, um, change condoms between sites, which is also important if you're having different types of sex, even with uh, one partner. Um, So changing condoms between partners, making sure you have a discussion about, you know, if you're concerned about STIs, if everyone involved has had STI testing. Yeah, just making sure everyone's on the same page. Sure. Yeah. Really. Just 
the fact that you have multiple partners doesn't necessarily put you at a higher risk of infection. You know, you're not more likely to get an STI because you have two partners than one, mm. technically. It depends on the kind of activity that's happening. Sure. If you're not using condoms with your main partner or you, you know, your monogamous partner, your monogamous partner has another partner or hasn't had testing before um, and comes into the relationship with an STI, then there's the risk there. But if you have multiple partners and if they have other partners as well, you know, and they use condoms with other partners, you know, just making sure that you have that discussion so that you know where everyone stands. That's good. That's a good answer. <laughs> Obviously, um, it's a really big question, probably pretty loaded, but um, what are some ways that we can make it less shameful or embarrassing to have an STI as a society almost, or just, yeah. you know, like normalizing it almost? I guess having these kind of conversations are very important and um, mm-hmm. just educating ourselves. That's like, I guess the main things that I would have to add to that, but mm-hmm. uh, what are some other things that you could think of? Well, to start with, for sure, sex ed and having sex ed that's robust, it's comprehensive, it's anti-oppressive, it's sex positive, and that's inclusive. Mm-hmm. And by inclusive, I mean anti-racist, sex ed that isn't cis-normative or heteronormative or ableist. It should be youth positive and it should take into account different types of bodies, uh, different types of sex, different types of relationships that people have. And, you know, we should teach people that, you know, they can, that people can and do live with STIs. Mm. Um, It's when we focus on sex as penis and vagina, and if you have sex, you'll get a disease. You know, that's when the foundation for shame and fear is laid. So if we can start to create a foundation that isn't based on that, then, you know, that starts to target the stigma from the very beginning. But uh, I know we're not there. (laughs) Yeah, that's far from coming, yeah. Yes. We're making progress slowly, but it's still like pretty uh, shame, a lot of shame out there. Yeah, yeah, we are, you know, starting to make progress. And we're starting to at least try doing things like teaching people from a young age about bodily autonomy, removing the shame around sex and bodies, talking more about pleasure and awareness and acceptance of different types of relationships. You know, if people have a better grasp of how to talk about their bodies, how to talk about their genitals, and, you know, they may be more likely to want to talk about the things that are happening to their Mm -hmm. genitals and not have this shame around even saying the words, Mm -hmm. you know. But for people who right now are worried or about getting an STI or afraid to test for STIs or they have an STI and, you know, they have shame about it or don't know how to feel about it, I would say step one is don't Google or research anymore. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I did this interview. So you don't have to Google, people don't have to Google everything you know yeah because there's a lot of misinformation out there yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and even you know internet forums that claim to be about a certain thing so herpes forums especially a lot of times can really take people down a rabbit hole um, that leads to a lot of anxiety and a lot of shame and fear Uh, about entering new relationships or disclosing to current partners or future partners. And that can be really overwhelming for people. Mm. Um, So I would say to seek out information from quote unquote medical 
um, sites or organizational sites. Um, there are a lot of, of podcasts and sexual health educators mm. um, on social media that can provide information about STIs. It's also really important to um, approach those types of things critically as well. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, sometimes people have different motives for the information that they put out. Mm. Sometimes there isn't a lot of references for certain facts that people put out. You know, it may be correct, but you just want to make sure you know where the information is coming from. Um, talking to a sexual health counselor is also very helpful. You can ask questions, talk mm. about the fear and the anxiety that you have around STIs or talking with other types of counselors if you find that there's a lot of anxiety around STIs. Um, sometimes if you have a lot of overwhelming anxiety, it could be that, you know, STIs are part of it, but there are other things that are a part of that STI anxiety. Okay. So it can be helpful to talk to a different type of counselor if you're comfortable. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Support groups are really helpful for people living with STIs. It might be more difficult now that, you know, you can't really meet in person. Yeah, for sure. But a lot of support groups have gone online mm. and people can sort of communicate in that way. You can even talk to a friend or a relative that you trust to be supportive about how you're feeling. Sometimes people, if they're newly diagnosed with herpes, they feel like they can't talk to anyone. They can't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. um, because they're afraid of how people will respond to them. Um, but sometimes, you know, you might talk to a really good friend of yours or a cousin of yours who will actually be there to support you or mm -hmm. might actually say, oh yeah, me too. I haven't talked about it, but I also have herpes. Um, and you can talk together about it. Um, Keeping these feelings inside, whether it's about herpes or, you know, if you've got chlamydia and you feel shame about it, keeping the feelings inside can cause a lot of anxiety. It can be really overwhelming. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And when you have that kind of overwhelm, it can affect you in a lot of different parts mm -hmm. of your life. And so That's it's important to get it out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's important. You know, I don't want to say philosophically, but <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Um, just try to remember that STIs don't define you exactly. and they don't have any moral meaning associated with them. Mm. You know, it's an infection just like the flu, for example, mm. if you got uh, gonorrhea, you know, having sex with someone, it doesn't mean that you are any kind of person. Mm -hmm. It's an infection that you got. STIs are very common. If they're not curable, they are treatable and manageable as well. So it's not something where physically it should be um, completely debilitating. Mm -hmm. There are situations where people can have untreated STIs, especially if they don't have access to testing or they don't have access to treatment mm -hmm. or, you know, because of the shame and stigma that exists, uh, they don't feel comfortable going to a family doctor if there are no other sexual health clinics, for example, in a certain area. Um, you know, they're afraid to go and talk to the doctor uh, or the clinic that's in their area and then therefore don't get the treatment and support that they need. So just being able to think about sexual health. And this is not just for, you know, people who have infections. This is for um, doctors or providers as well. 
um, just making it clear that sexual health is just as important as other types of, um, so getting tested for STIs and knowing your status, it helps people make decisions about how to make informed sexual health decisions. Um, If you know what's going on with your body, then you'll have a better idea of what you want and what you need. And then just normalizing, just normalizing sex, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, um, that there was a lot of awkward situations when like the doctors were just inappropriate or they just didn't know how to handle um, STI testing. They were just, uh, one asked me, are you a virgin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, do you think there are certain ways that doctors could be, I mean, less awkward about things and just as well, like bring less shame for people, you know, um, do you have any advice for medical staff, maybe? Yeah, so not asking someone if they're a virgin <laughs> for <ridiculous>. one. <laughs> um, you know, I won't go into my whole thing, but virginity is a construct. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't be about whether or not you're a virgin. It should be about what's relevant at the time. Yeah. Um, just uh, try to find ways of not using shamey language about sexual activity, um, make it a client-centered process as well, like asking the client um, what it is they need, explaining what's happening when you're doing it, um, not being afraid to ask a client um, what kind of sex are you having mm. so that you know what's relevant. Because again, that goes back to, well, you know, you need an STI test, let's give you a vaginal swab and, you know, send you on your way. People have oral sex, people have anal sex, people, you know, do all kinds of things. And just making those kinds of activities just as, quote, normal as, you know, penis and vagina missionary sex. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Also moving uh, moving away from the idea of dirty versus clean. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes I think people don't even realize they're saying it when they say it. Um, so someone comes back or, you know, gets testing done, um, to get the results back and, you know, there's no, uh, infection present mm. instead of saying something like, oh yeah, you're all good, all clean. Yeah. Um, or your results were clean. Um, anything like that, just state the fact of what it is. Mm-hmm. There was no infection present or yeah. your results came back negative. Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, making sort of flippant jokes about things like HPV mm-hmm. uh, or herpes, um, which can be damaging to people. Um, I think, and just also, like I said, normalizing STI testing. Yeah, for sure. In general, like if they, if someone comes in, for example, um, for a pap test, mm-hmm. um, you know, offer STI testing as well. Yeah. If they don't need it because you know, someone says I'm in a monogamous relationship, there are no other partners, then uh, fine, but not being afraid of at least asking the question. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, someone might be married for 25 years, but they may also have other partners, um, in addition to the partner that they've had for 25 years. Yeah. So making, uh, creating a safe environment for people to um, talk about mm-hmm. these types of things so that they can get the care that they need. 
Yeah, that's I, I always try to do that because um, I've been a medical admin for a long time, for like four years now. And I always try to make people feel like they're not in a, in a shameful environment, that I'm going to take care of them. And I, I'm just not going to judge them in any way because I know these these things happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are really scared to come in and say, like, I'm here for an STI test and stuff like that. Um, and you can never force it out of them. Like, if they're not comfortable telling you, then that's that's fine as well. But um, yeah, I think it's very important to make people feel comfortable once they're in the clinic, of course. Um, even if you're not a doctor, just being like a medical mm-hmm. staff is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Having that. Um, a compassionate approach, um, no matter what your role is in a clinic Mm -hmm. environment is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially when a lot of times people can come in with histories of trauma. And, you know, you want them to be able to feel like they're in an environment where they'll be cared for. Exactly, yeah. And that's especially important when you're um, in... So if, if you're in with the doctor or you're in with um, a staff person and you're performing some kind of test or you're doing something, making sure that you explain what's happening whenever it's happening. Um, and I guess that's pretty much what you would call trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. So making trauma-informed care part of your practice that can go a long way to making sex and STIs and sexual health less stigmatized. For sure. Mm-hmm. Think about the person that you're talking to, that you're providing a service to. Asking questions is really important, not just about, you know, whether they want to have an STI test with their pap test, but, you know, sometimes people kind of balk at it. Or they're like, why are you asking me these things? I came here to get a flu shot. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about the context as well, but, you know, asking just how they're doing, Yeah. Um, you know, if their relationship is going okay, anything else that they want to talk about that maybe doesn't relate to the issue that you're coming in for today. Yeah. You know, is, is there anything that might be helpful to talk about or that we can refer you to or because sometimes when they're freaking out, I always try to, you know, I always tell them like, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Everything is going to be fine. We're going to take care of you. It's normal. It happens. Like mm-hmm. you just, uh, you try to calm people down a little bit because sometimes it's really, you know, um, high energy. Like it just, it takes a lot of anxiety to, you know, especially when you know you're at risk. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's another thing as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, not really necessarily with health providers, but people who are concerned about STIs, really just understanding the risks mm-hmm. that exist. Mm-hmm. And that comes along with sex ed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of times people are taught the worst case scenario of doom and gloom. You have sex, so you're going to get an STD. Mm-hmm. Um, but if people are taught what's really involved, taught about what's really involved with STIs, what the risks really are, then they can sort of have a better idea of what they're dealing with and maybe not have as much anxiety if their risk is low. Yeah. And they'll make more informed decisions 
you know, well, not always, sometimes we're messy people and things happen, but <laughs> yeah. But at least there's the opportunity to make more. Exactly. Yeah. Is there, is there anything else that you have to add or anything that you have to ask me? Just to add. Um, so I talked about the different places where people go to get more information. And I think good idea to start with places that are, you know, fact-based, the places that give you the facts. So I know in Canada or in, in Ontario, we've got the Sex and You website or Castleford Clinic's website. We have pages that provide information about STIs and birth control, abortions as well. Planned Parenthood Toronto is also a good resource. There's the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, which is also good. The Sexual Health Info Line, mm -hmm. they're a good place to call if you have questions about specific STIs, uh, about symptoms, about testing, where you can go for testing because they would have information for different places in Ontario. Mm -hmm. There are organizations like Women's Health and Women's Hands, which also provides, they provide a lot. They do primary care as well as sexual health. They do mental health. Mm -hmm. They have, I don't know if you would call it a food bank, but they do have a food bank situation, lots of support groups as well for uh, women who are in a certain catchment. Mm -hmm. So that's a good option as well. So for women of color, they provide these services. And then, you know, Instagram is a place where I've come across a few accounts that I find really interesting, really helpful. Sometimes they use humor. They give a lot of information about different types of sex, how to talk to youth about sex, how to... Uh, maybe navigate relationships if you have STIs. So those are really good as well. I could list them off to you, but <laughs> that might be a lot to take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, information on Instagram nowadays. I mean, of course, you have to be wary of, you know, who's putting the information out there and what, what's out there. But um, it's, it's great now that it's being used as an informational tool, you know, things that we need to know. Very yeah. Great. So yeah, in terms of resources, I would say those are good places to look into. And mm -hmm. that really, like I said, is really focused on Ontario or Canada. But wherever you are, you can look into different uh, organizations and websites that might be more relevant to you, like on the East Coast of Canada or in the United States. There are lots of different health educators and organizations that can be useful. Or you could even check government websites as well. Government websites as yeah. well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. cdc.gov, <laughs> Health Canada's website also has lots of information as well. Oh, one last thing. I completely missed this. <laughs> Vaccines. So with HPV, mm -hmm. I didn't mention the Gardasil vaccine. Oh, of course. And I forgot to <laughs> <laughs> So the Gardasil vaccine that's available now is the Gardasil 9, and it protects against nine strains of HPV, okay. uh, two strains that cause genital warts and seven strains that cause changes to the cervix. Mm. And it also includes the strains of HPV, which are oncogenic. So that means um, 
cancer causing or they can lead to cervical cancer. In Ontario, they are being given to all kids in grade seven, I believe. Yeah, grade seven or eight, I forgot. Yeah, so grade seven or eight sounds about right. Is all kids or just, what? Well, I thought it was just girls? No, girls and boys. Okay. So kids of any gender. Okay. Um, now, it used to be that they just gave it to uh, girls in elementary school, but now kids of any gender can get the vaccine. Those who are older, mm-hmm. so I believe it's over age 18, Um, would have missed the window if they weren't already previously vaccinated. So adults who would like the vaccine will have to pay for it out of pocket. When when the kids get it in school, it's covered. Um, But if you're out of school, it's not covered. Mm. For those who are out of school, so who are adults, they can access the vaccine at different clinics. They can get it at a hassle-free clinic. There are certain populations who can get it covered just because uh, they weren't covered back when they were in school. So Mm -hmm. men who are under 26, Mm -hmm. um, men who have sex with men who are under 26 can get it uh, for free. Otherwise, it's about $170 per shot. Oh, Lord. And it's three shots that you get in a six-month period. Oh, my goodness. And it used to be that they only offered it to people 26 and under, Mm. but there isn't actually a cap for it. When studies were done, clinical trials and such, that was the population that they did the studies on. And so that was all they could, you know, really guarantee, I guess, Mm. the effectiveness for. But people who are over 26 can still get the vaccine and it will still be protective for them. It's also protective for people who have had genital warts or who have had abnormal pap. Oh, okay. So just because you've had an HPV infection doesn't mean that you can't access the vaccine. Yeah, because then there's so many, like you were saying, there's different strains that it protects you from, right? Right. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other vaccines I forgot to mention when we were talking about bloodborne infections or the hepatitis. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so hepatitis B can be uh, sexually transmitted. Um, It's spread through bodily fluids. So if someone has hepatitis B infection and they have a partner who is not immune either through vaccination or natural immunity, they can pass uh, hepatitis B on to that person. If you've not had vaccine before, we can offer screening. And if it shows that you are not immune, we can offer the vaccine as well at our clinic. Uh, For hepatitis A, hepatitis A is most commonly um, a foodborne infection. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Because it's spread through uh, fecal matter and also can be spread through blood. Um, but in a sexual health context, it spreads through or it can be spread, spread through oral anal contact. Mm. So if you do any rimming or quote ass eating, then you can transmit 
uh, hepatitis A that way. It doesn't have to be a lot of fecal matter. It could be just a little bit that can transmit it. Um, with hepatitis B, the different scenarios that can exist with an infection is uh, one, people can get the infection or a person can get the infection. They get sick, they get better, and then they uh, clear the infection and they have an immunity to it. Mm. And then there are those who will get sick They'll get better, but they don't clear the virus. They become carriers of hepatitis B virus. Um, Most, I would say in Ontario, most people um, have immunity or have had the vaccination for it because that's one of the vaccines they provide in schools. Yeah. And they've been providing them in schools since... I believe the early 80s, early to mid 80s. Um, So most people, unless there was a reason why they didn't get vaccinated in school, um, under a certain age have Mm -hmm. been um, vaccinated or have immunity to hepatitis B. Um, But there are some folks out there who... um, if they uh, were born in a country or lived in a country that didn't provide vaccination, um, Mm -hmm. that would then be, I guess, vulnerable to an infection. Um, And then people who are above a certain age would then not have necessarily been vaccinated in school and uh, might be vulnerable to an infection um, if they have a partner who is a carrier of hepatitis B. Um, For those who are exposed to hepatitis A, they'll have an illness for like a few weeks, sometimes to a few months, uh, but most people recover from hepatitis A. People who um, have other pre-existing illnesses, however, um, can be vulnerable to more serious infection. So that's something to look out for. So people who um, are immunocompromised due to HIV, for example, um, or if they have a pre-existing liver condition, because with the hepatitis uh, viruses, they can affect the liver. Okay. Um, so if someone has a pre-existing liver condition or an immunoc- or immunocompromised in another way, they can have long-term complications. Um, and with hepatitis B, um, that in later in life for people who are carriers, um, they can have issues with their livers, so they can have you know liver disease later on in life. So it may not be an immediate issue um, after your after you get an infection, but you know Long down time. the line. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So for hepatitis A, there is a vaccine if you do have a sexual risk. So if you do frequently have uh, sex with oral anal contact, Mm. uh, then there is a vaccine for that. You taught me something new. I never knew that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, It's not something that's talked about a lot with hepatitis A, just because most of the time it's not talked about unless you go to a travel clinic. So if you're going somewhere where there's a lot of hepatitis A present, um, or if there's an outbreak, not necessarily an outbreak, but if, you know, um, sometimes you'll have um, notifications about restaurants where someone Mm -hmm. has had hepatitis A, and then they encourage anyone who's eaten at the restaurant in a certain period of time to get vaccinated. Otherwise, I mean, you don't really hear about hepatitis A that much. And then again, we go back to, you know, shame and stigma around certain types of sex. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you ask if you do any rimming um, or, you know, what kind of sex you're having, it may not come up. Yeah. But even then, if you ask, like I said, this is the first time I'm hearing about hepatitis A being transmitted through rimming or ass eating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I've covered everything now. Yeah, you did great. Um, you honestly taught me a lot. Well, I, I don't know everything and I knew that going into this, but um, mm-hmm. that's kind of And I don't know everything either, so. Nobody does. <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> Yeah. No, but thank you so much. Um, it was a really great talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fun. It's a really good initiative, I guess you could say. You know, we talked about the different ways that sexual health is being disseminated mm. out there. And I mean, the more that we have, the better. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It should be accessible to everybody as well, too. Exactly. And, yeah. That's the thing. And like, we, we don't really learn things when we're kids, like in schools, like sex ed was not great back then. Mm-hmm. You don't get to learn about things until you, you're in university. And even then it's like, not everybody does. Um, right. so that's why like just having accurate information and, you know, just being able to talk about things, it's just, it will make everything so much better. And Yeah. Thank you so much for this. Well, thank you. <laughs> Well, that is the end of the interview, and thank you for tuning in. Denai was very kind enough to reach out to me after the interview to let me know that the Gardasil 9 vaccine is also free for some trans people under the age of 27. Also, there's an HIV and AIDS organization called ACAS, and it stands for the Asian Community AIDS Services. With that being said, I'm incredibly grateful for the interview that I've done with Denai. I definitely learned a lot. I knew that I didn't know everything about STIs going into it, but I have definitely came out of it knowing a lot more than I did before. And I hope that's the case with you as well. That's the whole goal of this whole project is to be able to share ideas and share knowledge and have things accessible for people for free. I would like to thank you again for tuning in and I would like to thank Denai for doing this interview with me and for informing me. As well, if you have any more questions or comments or recommendations, feel free to contact me. You can contact me through Instagram, which is mtalks.co, or you could email me at melissa at mtalks.co, which is my first name at mtalks.co. Again, I hope you enjoyed it And I will see you next time.